Welcome to the SMC 2021 podcast. What if God wanted to do something new in your life? This is your fresh start. What is up, guys? Welcome to SMC 2021. My name is Hunter Smith-Peters. I'm on staff at the University of Arkansas with student mobilization. Uh, Today, I'm going to be talking to you guys about a pretty tough topic, um, something that, you know, really has... Um, been on the minds of probably most humans for as long as we've been around. Um, and it's the problem of, of suffering. Why, why does suffering in the, happen in the world? And especially um, how, if there is a good God, how could he allow suffering to exist? And, you know, this is a problem that, man, it keeps people up at night. Um, it, it causes people a lot of problems. It causes them to leave um, faith, leave religion, um, lots of different things. And so I want to try to tackle this tough topic with you guys today, uh, help you leave with a better understanding uh, of God's heart, uh, why he might allow us to suffer, um, and then how we can we can best handle it in the world. And so we're going to be taking kind of a different couple, uh, a couple of different approaches as we do this. I'm going to try to uh, hit this topic from multiple different angles, um, and then we'll kind of work our way uh, inward to the heart of it. And so, um, you know, suffering, guys, it is a it is a part of life. Uh, we can't avoid it. It's going to happen. The question is not will we suffer, but when will we suffer and, and what will that look like? And so I want to help you guys just figure out how to what's the proper response to suffering and and also how do we understand it? Um, so I guess more how do we understand it than how do we respond with that right understanding? And so um, I know. You know, there's a lot of there's basically two different reactions that people will have to suffering in the world as it relates to their relationship with God. And uh, one example, my buddy uh, Rand, the guy that before I was a follower of Jesus, I was an atheist. And this is a guy that kind of he mentored me in a sense in atheism. And I worked with him. And what I learned about his life once I became a believer and a follower of Jesus is that um, his suffering in his life had led him to to really kind of hate God. Um, it, it began with slowly distancing himself from God because of this suffering that I probably won't, I'm not going to talk about, but he had, a, he had a suffering in his life that he would pray that, that God would take it away, that he wouldn't have to suffer with this thing. And um, he could, eventually he could no longer bear it. And, and that really drove him a just a massive wedge between him and God to the point where I realized that it wasn't that he didn't believe in God, even though he would say he was an atheist. I, I do believe he did, but deep, deep down, he hated God. Um, that was sad to watch. Uh, my friend, a guy I cared about, um, he didn't, uh, the, the suffering in his life, because he didn't understand it, um, it caused him to turn his back on God. Um, and so that's one response is, is suffering can distance us from God. Another example, though, uh, is one of a guy that um, he, he just recently uh, passed about a month or two ago. I actually went to his funeral. Um, his name is Doug Scheibel. Some of you may have met him before. Uh, Doug worked for a, a mission organization. He, he spent 15 plus years in a village tribe in Papua New Guinea, um, bringing the gospel and the good news of Jesus to a people group um, that didn't even have a written language. Uh, they, they were 0% Christians um, in this tiny village. No one else on planet Earth spoke their language. Uh, and Doug moved to this place, him, his family, and a couple other families, one, to learn the language and to bring the gospel in a Bible 
to this people group in their language in this village. And Doug, he he ended up doing that. There's a whole there's a village in Papua New Guinea that has a Bible, and and people know who Jesus is because of Doug's life and his faithfulness. And um, Doug, about a year ago, about a year and a half ago now, he came. Uh, got the bad news that he had uh, a rare form of um, Hodgkin's, I believe, lymphoma, um, a rare type of cancer. And he went downhill pretty quick. Um, and I got to talk to him beginning of the summer of 2020 and when he was going through chemo. And one of the things that I took away from my time talking to Doug on the phone was that th- this this ter- ter- uh, terminal disease that he had come down with that was per- fairly confident that it was going to kill him and take his life, um, this suffering that he was going through only served to bring him closer to God. It, it was honestly crazy. I, would, I was talking to him on the phone and just hearing how much he, he was growing deeper in his love for Jesus um, and his dependence on him through this time. It was really incredible. I remember just thinking, man, if I were in Doug's position, I can't imagine thinking about this the way he was. Uh, he just had such deep trust and hope in Jesus despite what was going on and despite his really seemingly unnecessary and horrible suffering that, you know, I have no idea why um, God allowed this to happen in his life, but he did. And the result of that was a deeper love of Jesus uh, in Doug's life before he passed. And so those are those are two different examples of people going through uh, intense suffering, yet um, the outcome being completely different in their lives. And so um, I want to talk a little bit about that. but And that, that's what we kind of call um, the emotional problem of suffering. Um, and I think that what I want to do is I want to start off on what I believe is kind of more of a periphery outside issue, um, which is kind of the intellectual problem of suffering. And I want to work inwards to the heart of why people use suffering as a reason to either not believe in God or or to to walk away from him. I want to show you guys first, uh, as we talk about this intellectual problem of suffering, um, a typical argument um, that people use uh, and why it actually doesn't do a good enough job of proving that God doesn't exist. And then from then on, we're going to move on to a biblical understanding of suffering so that we can put on the right lenses. And then we're going to talk about the emotional problem of suffering. Um, And so when it comes to the intellectual problem of suffering, uh, the typical argument, it goes like this. If God is all-knowing, he would know that suffering exists. If God is all-powerful, he could stop suffering. If God is all-good, he would want to stop suffering. Suffering does exist in the world. Therefore, God doesn't exist. That's the typical argument, how that goes. God is all-good, he's all-powerful, and he's all-knowing. And if he's all three of those things, how then could suffering exist? But because suffering does exist... It is implied then or assumed that God must not exist. So the question we have to ask is, is this a good argument? Um, we call these, uh, these, these premises, these statements that lead to the conclusion that God doesn't exist. We have to assess, do, does this follow? Um, and so uh, there's two reasons why this is not a good argument, which is what people, you know, even though people, um, we often use the problem of suffering as a reason to not believe in God. Um, they typically don't formulate it in their minds like this with these five statements. Um, but this is kind of what they're saying. This is a, this is implied in what they mean by, um, the problem of suffering. And so 
this isn't a good argument for two reasons. Number one, um, it's not a good, uh, good argument is because it implies that the existence of both God and suffering is a logical impossibility. Um, so what do I mean by a logical impossibility? A logical impossibility are basically two contradictory statements, something that by definition could not exist. Um, so what are some examples of that? Think of the example of, um, let's say, uh, a married bachelor, okay? That is a um, logical impossibility. It's a contradiction in terms. If I said David is married, and then I said David is a bachelor, what it is to be married is to not be a bachelor. And what it is to be a bachelor is to not be married. And so you can't be a married bachelor. David can't be both married and a bachelor based on the definitions of those two things. Um, so that's a logical impossibility or a logical contradiction. So now we have to ask the question, is, is the existence of a all-powerful and all-loving God, um, is it logically impossible that both he and suffering exists in the same universe? Um, is it true that an all-loving, all-powerful God existing and suffering existing are logically contradictory? Well, no, right? There's nothing within that, like a married bachelor, right, that is inherently or in and of itself um, impossible or contradictory. Um, so another example of this would be like the smell of blue, okay? Um, that doesn't make any sense, right? Smell is a sense and blue is an opposite sense. You can't smell the color blue. Um, that's a logical contradiction or a logical impossibility. Or, or take another example, the greatest conceivable pizza, right? Now, is that logically possible? Could you have a greatest conceivable pizza? Well, of course not, right? Because a pizza, um, no one agrees for one, what makes a good pizza, right? If I just added more pepperonis, I could have an infinitely, um, I could just keep adding one one pepperoni and just making the pizza better over and over and over again. Or could it be thick crust or thin crust? There's no standard um, by which to decide what makes and what makes or doesn't make a good pizza. So the idea of a greatest possible or conceivable pizza is a logical impossibility. So then the, we have to ask, is the existence of God and suffering, is that like the smell of blue or a married bachelor? Well, the answer is no. There's nothing inherently contradictory about God existing and suffering existing. So that's the first reason why this isn't a good argument. Second is because how do we know what God would or wouldn't do um, in, in these situations? My guess is that none of us are very good divine psychologists, right? We're not good at figuring out the mind of God um, what he would or wouldn't do in certain situations, whether or not he would create a world that has suffering if he is good. Um, so we have to ask the question, is it true? If we look at, if we think about that argument we talked about, um, the third statement says that if God is all good, he would want to stop all suffering. Well, is that true? Is it true that if he did exist, he would in fact stop all suffering in the world? Is it possible that God allows suffering in the world because he pr it produces a greater good that actually outweighs the suffering that's allowed? If God did have a sufficient reason to allow suffering in order to achieve a greater good, would we expect to have the ability on our own to figure out what those reasons would be? 
I don't think so. We, we assume that just because we, us, ourselves, in our, in our finite, limited minds, because we can't think of a reason why God would allow suffering in the world, then he must not have a reason. But that doesn't make any sense. These are what um, I like to call no seems. Okay, we go, we no see them, so they're not there. We can't see a reason for why God would allow suffering. And then because of that, we conclude that he must not have a reason. But is it reasonable to think that we have, we have the resources, the cognitive faculties and tools needed to grasp the infinite, unlimited wisdom and knowledge of the creator of, of the universe, right? Do, do we have that ability? Even if God did have reasons for why he allows them, would we be able to grasp them? Let me give you some examples of these. So, you know, I, like I said, we call the, I call these no see We no see them, so they're not there. Well, there's actually a mosquito up in, I believe, around the Michigan area, which I'm not from Michigan, so I've never actually experienced one of these. But there's these mosquitoes that they call no see mosquitoes because they're so small that they actually have the ability to fit through the netting of tents um, or even sometimes loose clothing. And if you looked at them on their skin, your skin, it would actually maybe just look like a piece of, you know, a little black piece of lint or something like that. Um, they're so tiny that people don't have the ability to see them. But just because I don't have the ability to see them doesn't mean that the mosquitoes aren't actually there, right? If I was if I was in my tent with my best friend and we were camping and I was like, oh, I just got bit by a mosquito. And he goes, man, I don't see any mosquitoes. But, but that doesn't mean that they're not actually there just because my friend can't see them. Another example, um, imagine that I told you whatever room you're sitting in right now, or imagine if I said, hey, is there a St. Bernard dog sitting in front of you? And you said, no. Well, we would assume that your eyes, if there were a St. Bernard in front of you, your eyes would have the ability to detect it or not, right? So if you said no, because you couldn't see one, you'd probably be right. There, there probably is not a St. Bernard in front of you. But if I said, hey, is there any bacteria in front of you? And you looked around and you didn't see any bacteria and then you concluded that there must not be any bacteria because you can't see them. Um, that would not mean that there is not bacteria in front of you. In fact, there is bacteria in front of you. Your eyes just don't have the ability to see them. Another example, oftentimes, and a lot of us can probably relate to this, when we were kids, our parents, you know, they would, we'd be in the grocery store and we want those lucky charms, those really sugary uh, cereals or that toy and our parents tell us no and we and that is like a world breaker for us we have no idea why our parents are telling us no but that doesn't mean that they don't have a reason in our in our very young minds we don't have the ability to comprehend the reasoning of our parents so how much more then would we have the ability in our limited minds to comprehend the reasoning of an unlimited mind like god's and in each of the examples, these examples, we lack the tools necessary to observe the thing that we're searching for, even if they weren't there or even if they are there. But just because I can't see them doesn't mean it isn't there. So then to assume that because I can't see bacteria on the kitchen floor or in front of me, then it must mean it must not be there. That's actually to be an error. This unsearchableness of God's understanding is exactly the picture the Bible paints of God. In Isaiah 40, uh, 28 through 29, 
Uh, the prophet Isaiah says, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. And then in Romans 11, 33 to 36, actually quoting the passage I just read, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. Then in the book of Job, we see this story of, of Job was a man um, of uprightness. He was, he was blameless before God, it says. And this whole book, Job is allowed to go through immense suffering. And the whole time, he actually doesn't spend his time cursing God or any of those sorts of things or, or you know, giving his middle finger to God or anything like that. He, he actually spends the time questioning why God is allowing this to happen. Um, what reason does God have for allowing him to suffer seemingly um, for no reason? And after, you know, essentially 37 chapters or 36 chapters of Job questioning God, his friends questioning Job, um, Job gets a response from God. And, and the Lord says this, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Then a little later, he says, Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. And, and so for basically two chapters, God essentially questions Job back, saying, What do you know? I'm the creator of the universe. He, he gives all these just crazy um, an, um, images of, of God measuring out the foundations of the earth or the expanses and knowing where the light goes, where it rests and where the beasts rest and where do their strength and their legs come from and all these things that only God can fathom. But Job and, and the rest of humans have no ability to fathom these things. And so... So this image that we get of, of God in, in the Bible is that his, his knowledge and his understanding and his reasoning, they're unsearchable in his unlimited mind. Um, he calculates all things and takes all things into consideration before making decisions. And we do not have the ability to grasp his reasoning, even if it exists, even if God does have a reason for some un incomparable good that would that he would need to allow suffering in order to get that good if he did have that reason we should not think that we would have the ability to grasp it with our own minds and so because of this uh, this intellectual problem of evil it, it, this is pretty much um you know in scholarly circles even atheists don't typically use this argument at least the ones that kind of know what they're doing um most atheist philosophers and i i know because i studied philosophy at the university of arkansas they actually have more or less given up on this problem of evil um a couple examples uh and all these guys i actually learned about while i was studying philosophy in college um these atheist philosophers jl Mackey. he is a oxford professor he says we can concede that the problem of evil does not after all show that the doctrines of christianity are logically inconsistent with, a, with one another. Basically meaning that 
that the problem of evil does nothing against the beliefs of Christianity. That I can believe in suffering and just as easily believe in, in the beliefs of, of Christianity, what the Bible says, and who Jesus was and says he is and did. Um, William L. Rowe, uh, he's another um, philosopher. He says, some philosophers, have, he's an atheist, by the way. He says, some philosophers have contended that the existence of evil is logically inconsistent with the existence of the Christian God. No one, I think, has succeeded in establishing such an extravagant claim. Meaning that many philosophers, they have tried to say that the existence of suffering in the world is completely incompatible with the existence of the Christian God. And then he says, but no one has actually has actually succeeded in proving that to be the case. Lastly, William P. Alston, another atheist philosopher, uh, he says, it is now acknowledged on almost all sides that the logical or this intellectual argument of, why, of suffering is bankrupt. So that being said, I think we can actually, um, like most scholars, like most thinkers, we can actually kind of put the intellectual problem aside. Um, that, that God could exist and have good reason to allow suffering in the world. Um, now I want to turn to the biblical understanding of suffering. How, I want to make sure we put on the right lenses so that we can see the world through the lens of the Bible and the way it wants us to see everything. Um, and so with the intellectual problem well out of the way, I want to, to look at this. Um, mainline Buddhism, it views suffering as the ultimate problem in the universe. And it has to be eliminated through removing all desire and through this we can find eternal nirvana or uh, self-enlightenment. Um, this is just one example of the world um, and its view of suffering. Many different religions have views, um, and our culture even often pushes onto us the idea that the purpose in life is happiness. So then it makes a ton of sense why suffering seems like such a problem. If you believe that happiness is the purpose of life, anything that takes away that happiness it must be evil and it must be eliminated. And so this is problematic because it makes God sort of like a, a little, it makes us kind of like house pets or like him, our babysitter with his sole job to keep us happy, comfortable, and with a full belly. But this is not a biblical understanding of either the purpose of life or the purpose of suffering. So the question is, what is the ultimate purpose in life? And what is that purpose according to Jesus? Well, in John 17, 3, Jesus, he says this in his, in his prayer. He's praying to the Father in the midst of his disciples. And he says, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So the purpose of life is eternal life with God. And that is the same thing as knowing him, to know him and to be fully known by him forever. So then... If the purpose in life is to know God, suffering actually, it comes into a much different perspective. Scripture views suffering as a sort of refining fire, which removes the impurities and prepares us for something much more glorious. Now let's return back to the story of Job. We get this picture um, in Job 1 of this adversary, um, the Satan, the Satan, and which is what the word Satan means. It means the adversary, and it always in the Bible has that word the in front of it. It's never Satan alone as just a title, but it's the adversary, the Satan. 
he comes to God and he tells, and God tells the Satan in verse eight of chapter one of Job, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. So Job is a man who obeys God. He trusts in him. He's upright, which means he's in the right standing with God. Yet God allows the Satan, the Satan, to test Job by putting many afflictions on him. He gets boils, the death of loved ones and cattle. Uh, he loses almost all of his possessions. And then Job spends the majority of, of this narrative questioning God and asking for a reason why God is allowing such suffering to come on upon him. Um, and not to go, you know, not to, you know, kind of re-say what we said earlier, but um, the response that God gives is to return the questioning back on Job and showing that he is unable to fathom God's ways. Uh, then we get to the New Testament and First Peter, and we get this pretty counterintuitive idea coming from Peter, um, where he says in, in ch uh, chapter 4, verses 12, Dear friends, do not be astonished that a trial by fire is occurring among you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in the degree that you have shared in the sufferings of Christ, so that when his glory is revealed, you may also rejoice and be glad. So then let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator as they do good. And so, Here's the kind of the takeaway from this passage and the connection that we want to make between the ideas of suffering, testings, and trials and how those interrelate. Suffering, and this is key, so if you're listening and you're taking notes, write this down. Suffering relates to your character like fire relates to gold. So I'm going to say that again. Suffering relates to your character like fire relates to gold. Guys, you and I we need suffering. You may think, why do we need suffering? Well, I ask you, do you want to be sympathetic? Do you want to be a compassionate person? Do you want to be loving? Do you want to be tolerant? Do you want to be humble and joyful? Do you want to have a profound trust in God or wisdom about life? Then you need suffering. None of these things are possible without suffering. There is no way to know who you really are until you're tested. There's no way to truly trust God until you're drowning. And there's no way to be wise about how life works unless you have suffered and learned from that experience. You think about even just going to the gym, right? Or getting better at some sport, right? The fact that I'm sore the next day shows that my, my muscles, they suffered and they were tested and put under trial. And through that, they grew stronger. The best things in life often come when we're tested and we have to suffer. The writers of the Bible, they didn't shrink back from suffering because they understood that suffering produces in us what nothing else can. True experiential knowledge of God, a character and a character that is more like him. That's why James, uh, the Apostle James in chapter 1, verse 2 and 3 of, of the book of James, he says, My brothers and sisters, consider it nothing but joy when you fall into all sorts of trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect effect so that you will be perfect and complete, not deficient in anything. And so he says that the, the testing of our faith, the, the, the suffering and the trials that we go through, it produces in us endurance and endurance produces 
perfection and completeness and and the ability to not lack in the things that we need and in our personal character. In Romans 5, Paul says this to the, the church in Rome. He says, not only this, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance character and character hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So we see that the result of suffering produces endurance, and that endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and that hope does not disappoint. 2 Corinthians 4, um, Paul says, For our momentary light suffering is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison, because we are not looking at what can be seen, but at what cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary, but what cannot be seen is eternal. The key to true joy and happiness, according to a biblical, biblical perspective, is to know Jesus and to be more like him. And in the end of the book of Job, God actually ends up restoring Job and everything that he has, he basically doubles it. Um, and that's fine. And that's awesome. But, but that's not the point. What Job really gained, um, which is of infinitely more value, was not things. It was a deep trust in God. That, that God knows what is best and what is good, and that he works all things for good for those who love him. Job gained a deep, deep experiential knowledge of God and his faithfulness. And without that suffering, guys, he would have never gained that. The knowledge of God is an incomparable good, and without it, life is meaningless. I'm going to say that again. The knowledge of God is an incomparable good, and without it, life is meaningless. So then, with that understanding in mind, with the, under, the biblical understanding of the fact that suffering actually produces something better in us that we wouldn't have without suffering. With that understanding in mind, how do we deal with what I believe is really at the heart of the issue, issue which is the emotional problem of suffering? For most, the intellectual problem of suffering, it's not the real issue. It's the emotional side of it. We don't like a God who would permit suffering and evil. And so we turn our backs on him. And this is because we tend to view the purpose of life as worldly happiness. And so then we blame God for our sufferings. And it, it further distances our already hard hearts from him, even though the suffering is meant to draw us nearer to him. Remember, our hope lies not in worldly happiness, but in that day when God will wipe away every tear. And what do the tears come from? These tears come from the trials and the sufferings and the hard things in life. C.S. Lewis said it well. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. Pain is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. If, if, if Lewis is right, C.S. Lewis, if he's right about this and God does use suffering and pain for good in our lives, how do we live in light of this? Two practicals um, I want to give you to help to help us all emotionally handle the suffering we will face. Number one, understand that the result of suffering, uh, understand that understand the result of suffering with an eternal perspective. Now I know we've already talked about this at length um, and the result of suffering, but remember, suffering can bring about a deeper, more intimate knowledge of God, either on the part of the one who is suffering or from those around him. Think about my example from, from my friend Doug Scheibel, 
who had cancer. Even though his suffering actually made me think about, man, do I really depend on God like I should? If I were in Doug's position, would I begin leaning more into God or leaning away from God? And that made me reflect on my own relationship with Jesus and, and how I view him and suffering. And this knowledge, it is an incomparable good. The greatest suffering one could ever experience would be incomparable to the eternal knowledge of God. And the second practical, however, this is where everything really comes into perspective and, and honestly becomes more beautiful. Now we've established that suffering, it is like a refining fire that is meant to test and purify us if we endure through it. Um, that This word, and we talked about it in James, that the testing of our faith, that word in the original language, it has this idea of when a, a um, goldsmith or a silversmith, in order to purify his silver or his gold, he would pour it into a furnace, a crucible. And what would happen would, would be that all the gold and the silver, it would rise to the top with the impurities sitting at the top. And then what he would do is he would scrape across the top of this crucible and all the impurities would go with it. And then it would continue to rise and he would repeat this process over and over until the result was purified gold and silver. And this is the idea of, of the biblical idea of testing, of, of suffering and what it does for us. It, like I, and that's why I said earlier that, that suffering relates to your character like fire relates to gold because suffering, it draws out the impurities and it refines us to make us more and more golden. And so, so if, we, if we've established that suffering is like a refining fire and it's meant to test and purify us if we endure through it, how do we get to a place where when the fire does come, and it will, it turns you into gold? Well, here's the answer. So if you're taking notes, write this down. How can we get to a place where when the fire comes, it turns you into gold? You will feel Jesus, feel Jesus walking with you in your furnace to the degree that you know that Jesus was thrown into the ultimate furnace for you. And if Jesus was thrown into the ultimate furnace for you, you will feel him in your smaller, cooler furnaces with you. And so, so thinking through that, guys, um, that, that's how we, we should think about this. In the Garden of Gethsemane, before Jesus was about to go to the cross, something very interesting happened to him. Um, it says that he was sweating. And now, you know, we typically probably read right over this and we don't think about it. Um, but he was sweating. And why was he sweating? Well, he's sweating because this Jesus, God, became man, was about to enter into the furnace for you. And I'm reminded of the story in Daniel of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They, they refuse to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's idols. And, and so he throws them into the furnace. And not even, it says not even the, the, their garments were singed. Even the, the men that threw them in the fire, it was so hot that they were consumed. And Nebuchadnezzar, he looks into the furnace and he sees this figure, like the son of man is what it says, standing in the furnace with the three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they end up coming out, and Nebuchadnezzar ends up worshiping Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's God. Um, and he saw that their God was in the furnace with them. And so Jesus, he's sweating because he's about to go into the furnace, the, the Roman cross, the most, the most excruciating torture 
and the shameful torture that the Romans had, Jesus was going to do for our sake. That's why then Isaiah 43, 2-3 says, When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Guys, Jesus saw the glowing heat of the furnace that he was about to enter, enter, enter in for your sake and for my sake. God is a God who enters into human history in order to suffer in a way that we could never comprehend. You and I, our suffering, it's deserved because we have sinned against a good and loving God. But the gospel, the good news of Jesus is that you and I, because we don't love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and because we don't love our neighbor as ourselves, we deserve to be cast away from, a, from God and to lose him forever. And because, and this is key, because we're built for him and designed for God, to lose God forever means to be in agony. And Jesus came to earth to be thrown into the ultimate furnace, which he didn't deserve, but that we all had rightfully earned because of our sin. So then the real mystery that should amaze us then is not why a good God allows suffering, but why a good God would allow evil people like ourselves to be saved and to be redeemed. Jesus suffered not so that you and I might never suffer and be constantly comfortable, but so that when we do suffer, and he promises we will, we become more like him. Those who place their trust and hope in Jesus, they follow after him, and they are given the ability to walk through the furnace, because when we do, we know that he walks with us. So guys, just to recap, um, when it comes to the intellectual problem of evil, God, we, we often cannot fathom the reasons why God would, would allow certain things in life, but they often and probably always do um, have some incomparable good as a result of them. And God is just using them to, to bring us nearer to himself. And just because we can't, we can't comprehend the reasoning doesn't mean God doesn't have reasons. Um, and the biblical understanding is that God uses suffering for good to, to um, refine us like gold. And so then how do we become, um, how do we become like gold? Well, two ways, by understanding that the, res the, the result of suffering with an eternal perspective, that it produces something in us which could never be produced without the suffering, and to understand that the gospel gives us the resources we need to handle suffering. Um, you will feel Jesus walking with you in your furnace to the degree you know that Jesus was thrown into the ultimate furnace for you. And if Jesus was thrown into the ultimate furnace for you, you will feel him in your smaller, cooler furnaces with you. So guys, lean on that. As you begin, come to Jesus. If, if you have some sort of suffering in your life, bring that to him. Don't run from him. Even if you, even if you haven't made the decision to, to follow Jesus, that doesn't mean you can't pray to him and you can't bring these things to him and find comfort in him. But you got to know him first. And, and so maybe that means reading your Bible. Maybe it means reading about Jesus' sufferings in one of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and seeing the life he lived for you. And then that will give you the endurance to keep going, which is why Hebrews 12 says um, that that Jesus, look at, it says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and now he's seated at the right hand of God where he makes intercession for us and he pleads on our behalf 
to the Father. And you can trust in him and you can count on him and lean in on him and he welcomes you. So guys, don't let, don't let this problem draw you away from God, but instead allow it to draw you in to a deeper dependence and knowledge of Jesus. And that, that knowledge of him is an incomparable good. Oh, 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 oh,